everyone. Uh, it's great to be here with you on New Year's Eve as uh, we prepare to go into 2024. Um, James going to introduce me, but for those that don't know me, my name is Wes Hawthorne. Uh, earlier this year, Holly and I got married, um, so I'm very happy to be here uh, sharing the ministry that has so uh, means so much to me and to Holly uh, with the church that means so much to her. Um, and so today I want to share with you a little bit about um, who PHA, Program for Humanitarian Aid, is. Um, what we're currently doing in Ukraine, uh, the state of the churches in Ukraine, and what life is like there. And then I want to talk a little bit about um, how that relates to uh, the Bible. We're going to look at the book of Ruth for a biblical example of how God calls us to provide for, to, for widows, orphans, and strangers. So, PHA, otherwise known as Program for Humanitarian Aid. Um, sorry, here. Okay. I got involved with PHA right after I graduated college through connections with the Aggies for Christ. I went and lived in Ukraine for six months. Uh, this was in 2019, before the war started. I lived there working with our ministry partners day to day and serving the kids at that time that PHA serves. Some of you may remember Holly also lived in PHA the next year, or lived in Ukraine working with PHA the next year after I did. Um, so this ministry means a lot to both of us. Since then, I started working with PHA full-time. I've made several trips back to Ukraine, including three since the war started. Um, I was there uh, the weeks after the war started in Romania and western Ukraine. We were driving trucks of supplies into Ukraine and getting refugees out. Um, and I've been back a couple times doing similar work and also organizing our ministry in eastern Ukraine. Right now... PHA is on the ground in Ukraine, connecting vulnerable Ukrainians to a Christian community that provides aid and hope. So a little background. We have been working in Ukraine uh, in our current form for about 10 years. During that time, we've worked closely with Ukrainian Christians to grow God's kingdom in Ukraine in a variety of ways. We have adapted to work towards that goal. Uh, before the war, we were completely focused on ministering towards orphans and at-risk uh, youth. We had two day centers in two of our current cities, uh, and in those day centers we held daily life lessons, Bible lessons, and fellowship time with these kids from the orphanages to help them transition into healthy lives. Now, because of the war, almost all the orphanages that we work with have moved the kids out of the country, and some for very good reasons. I uh, just saw yesterday pictures of one of the orphanages I've been to uh, in eastern Ukraine that's completely destroyed now. Uh, luckily, all those kids were evacuated out before the Russians got to that village. Um, so, because the kids we serve are no longer there, we are utilizing our existing staff to serve vulnerable Ukrainians of all ages. We have a network of 72 Ukrainians serving as full-time ministry partners or volunteers, we work in three eastern Ukrainian cities of Zaporozhye, Kamensky, and Dnipro. In the almost two years since the war started, we have adapted uh, our situation on the ground, and now we are serving all displaced and vulnerable Ukrainians. Yep. Volume on this. There is filled with joy and relief as we bid farewell to the hot summer days and welcome the refreshing breeze of the upcoming cooler days. However, thousands of miles away in Ukraine, 
The end of summer does not bring relief, but fear. The chilly winds do not just carry the promise of snow, but the harshness of survival. Last year, the unforgiving winter months were made even harsher as Russia targeted Ukraine's energy infrastructure, leaving many Ukrainians grappling with the intense cold without heat, often in total darkness. The looming winter threatens not just with its frosty embrace, but challenges every Ukrainian with dwindling food supplies, scarcities of warmth, and crippled transportation. The struggles are intensified as Russia has already displayed intentions to once again target civilian infrastructure this winter. But amidst the biting cold and looming shadows, there's a beacon of hope. PHA is on the ground, providing loving guidance, essential aid, and restoring hope in the hearts of Ukrainians. The end of summer might be a symbol of struggle and survival in Ukraine, but together, we can make it a symbol of hope, resilience, and shared humanity. We appeal to each and every one of you to keep Ukraine in your prayers and to support PHA's mission. Your support can be the warmth in someone's winter, the light in their darkness, and the hope in their despair. Let's unite in prayers and action to restore hope in Ukraine. Thank you for your compassion and your support. Okay. Especially earlier on the war, you saw a lot about Ukraine in the news. And I don't want to talk to you about battle plans and front lines. I want to talk to you about people, because that's who we're serving and that's who we care about. And something you'll hear us a lot is we say is that we are serving displaced Ukrainians. In Ukraine, they call them IDPs, or internally displaced peoples. But what does that mean? Who really are these people? What are their lives like? And, and why do they need our help so much? I think to truly understand how important the work is that PHA is doing, it's key to understanding who these displaced persons are and what their lives look like. So to understand that, first I want to look to a few verses through the book of Ruth. So we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Mehlon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Mehlon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. So, we notice in verse 1, there's a severe famine in the land. You know, I'm sure there's some ranchers in the room here. But in, in the West, we don't often understand what a severe famine means. Um, because, uh, to tell you the truth, in America, we really haven't seen that since maybe the Dust Bowl. But uh, to an Eastern reader, to the Jewish reader, the word famine carries such deep meaning. Uh, it is a, an absolute disaster. People are starving to death. Um, this is not just a, a drought or a hard time. This is a catastrophe in their society. So, they decide to go to Moab. 
And going to Moab is a very interesting decision here uh, for Naomi and Elimelech because uh, Moab is just across the valley from uh, Judah. In fact, it would be in what is uh, modern-day Jordan. And so if there is a famine in uh, Israel, there almost certainly is also a famine in Moab. So there's a, a few kind of theories on why they decided to go to Moab. One theory is that it's possible Naomi and Elimelech uh, trusted in the Moabite gods to provide for them more than uh, God. And so in this case, they would be kind of turning their back on uh, their faith and leaving and to put their faith in these false gods. But the other theory is that, uh, you know, there's one place uh, in ancient Israel when there's a famine that you always go. And that's Egypt, because Egypt has the Nile River. It's going to flood, and there's always going to be crops. No matter how bad the famine is, there will be food in Egypt. And that's why we see the Israelites go to Egypt several times. But at this point, God has told his people, do not return to Egypt. Uh, this is the place I have set out for you. So it's possible Naomi and Elimelech are trying to walk in God's story. And they're trying to make the decision to not go to Egypt where it would be easy. But they have to go somewhere. They, they can't stay where they're at. They feel like they have to do something different. So they leave everything. They leave their community they leave every one of their friends and family. They pick up what they have and they move to Moab where they will live as strangers uh, in a different place. While there, Elimelech dies. Naomi's left with her two sons. Her two sons marry these Moabite women who are pagans. They don't follow the same God as Naomi does. Um, and then later, both of her sons die as well. So now you have the widow Naomi with her two foreign daughter-in-laws who were also widows um, and it's really important to note here that that society was a very patriarchal society and I don't mean that in a negative sense but in the fact that it was led by men and the, the man in your family was the person who had the voice in society and so to have a widow and she has no sons no husband she has no voice whatsoever in society and neither do the daughters in fact the daughters would be considered orphans because their father-in-law is gone and their husbands are gone. So we'll pick back up in verse 6 with all of that background. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab and return to her homeland. Now, notice that uh, in that verse, the Lord has blessed Judah with good crops. Uh, to me, that means Moab, there's still a drought. You know, they did this huge move. They left everything behind. They risked it all to go to somewhere they thought would be better, and it didn't work out. The place they should have been all along was staying back in Judah, because that's the first place that the famine has ended. So now they're living amongst foreigners who lost their husbands and son, and it turns out they should go back to where they started. So Naomi's returning as a widow with no male in the family, and this is an honor and shame society. And by leaving the fellowship of the Lord and by living amongst pagans, uh, she, they have brought shame on their family. And so she's returning with no voice in society, shamed with these two foreign daughter-in-laws. Now, Naomi tries to convince both of them, uh, Ruth and Orpah, to go back home. Orpah leaves, but Ruth is determined to stay with Naomi. She makes it clear that she's willing to sacrifice whatever happiness she might have back in Moab to take care of Naomi. So Naomi comes back and is bringing an unclean daughter-in-law with her. Um, 
Sorry, I lost my place real quick. And not only that, but if you remember back in Deuteronomy, the Lord gives a list of peoples that are not to enter the assembly of God for ten generations. And the Moabites are on that list. So not only is uh, Ruth this pagan daughter-in-law who's unclean, she's also uh, essentially not allowed to enter the assembly of God. Um, So this is just a really tough situation they're coming in. They have nothing and they have no hope whatsoever. Um, Now I want to tell you another story that may sound somewhat similar to that. In February of 2022, Oksana was living in the the village of Komenskova. At that time, she had a modest home, a stable job. Her daughter and son-in-law were raising her grandchildren, and her parents lived lived nearby. Her father was fighting cancer, but he had chemotherapy treatments that were provided from a state-funded program. Then... All that changed when Russia invaded. Their village was shelled heavily, and they had to leave, leaving, flee to reach society, leaving their whole lives behind. At one point, Oksana says her parents were sitting in their living room, and a a bomb exploded outside, and it blew her parents' door in. And they just sat there, hoping for a quick death. But they survived, and they fled to the big city of Zaporizhia. Now, their village was much smaller than even early. And they fled to a a city that has over a million people. And there, they're with hundreds of thousands of other people who also fled for their lives. While they're there in this big city of Zaporizhia, having left everything behind, Oksana learns that she also has cancer and is going to need chemotherapy. And not only that, but both her father and her will not be able to receive the state funding for the chemotherapy treatment uh, because of some bureaucratic mess that was happening because of their move. Um, Her son, the father of her grandchild, was fighting in the war and was gravely injured. This is all happening within months of leaving their home in a new city without a job in the midst of a war with daily missile attacks and air raid alarms. At the time, Oksana said, and this is a direct quote, I remember when Andre called me. Andre is PHA's director of operations in Ukraine. I remember when Andre called me for the first time, inviting me to get humanitarian help. At first, it was scheduled for Wednesday, but I had chemotherapy that day, so I asked to change it. Andre kindly suggested Saturday instead, and even though I expected to feel sick after chemo, I agreed. I had financial difficulties due to my expenses for my cancer treatment, so even though I felt ill, I gathered my strength and went to receive the aid. In that time, I questioned my purpose in life during moments of despair. But I also had a strong desire to see my grandchildren grow. I was determined to survive, so I sought help and support, even though my initial reaction was to spend days in bed crying. I think Oksana's story is very similar to that of Naomi and Ruth. During the hardest times of their life, They're forced to leave everything they know behind and live amongst their own people as strangers and outcasts with no community to support them. That's what it means to be a displaced person in Ukraine. And unfortunately, Oksana's story is not unique to Oksana. Since the beginning of the war in February of last year, PHA has served over 20,000 families and individuals almost all of which have had their lives torn apart 
They left all their community behind and their support structure in a desperate bid to save their life. Right now in Ukraine, there's over four, four and a half million internally displaced people. That's two Houstons that are still living in Ukraine, but they have left everything behind. They don't need only food, but they need hope, they need family, and they need healing. Actually, what we do is introduce them to God and show them that God has not abandoned them, that He cares about them, continues to support them, and that our big team, the family, is involved in all of this. Here is my hope that sooner or later everything will calm down, and when the years pass, they will be able to remember that they once received the seeds of that goodness. This grace which we have passed on to them, and this person will look at her children, maybe at her grandchildren, and she will say, if you only knew how difficult it was in those days, and if you only knew what kind of people there were, there were organizations that supported us, and we will definitely continue to do the same. So tell about Christ and about Christianity and about the mercy of God that we carry with us. Now, let's look back to Ruth and get an example, get a picture of how God calls his people to serve widows, orphans, and strangers. 
So Ruth goes out to gather dropped bits of grain in the field. Um, and in doing so, she is noticed by Boaz. She doesn't know who Boaz is, and he has to be told who she is. But Boaz immediately goes above and beyond uh, to provide for this Moabite woman. You know, he is already doing what's required of him by the law. Boaz is leaving the corners of his fields ungathered. He's telling his men if they drop bits of grain to leave them on the ground so that those who are in need can come gather them. And Ruth is doing those things. But when Boaz sees someone in need, someone without community and without hope, he doesn't just stop at what's required. He goes above and beyond. He sees a stranger and widow, and he immediately provides for her. And through the rest of the story, we see Boaz working to redeem Naomi and Ruth, to give them a place in society amongst God's people. And we can see in the story that this is more than just anyone would have done. Because if you look to chapter 4, Boaz, he's doing things the right way. You know, he, he wants to redeem them, but he knows that there's one member of his family that is closer to them, that, that has the, the job of being the uh, redeemer first. So Boaz goes to this person and he offers them the chance. He says, do you want to redeem Naomi and Ruth? Do you want to buy this piece of land? And the guy, uh, he immediately says, yeah, I would love to, to buy this piece of land. And Boaz says, okay, well, it does come with this Moabite woman who is going to enter your household and you have to redeem her too. And then he's out. He says, never mind. My, my household cannot sustain such a burden. Um, whether that was because he felt he couldn't have another mouth to feed or he didn't want the, the shame of having this foreign woman in his house, he's not willing to redeem them. But Boaz is. Boaz immediately goes out he marries Ruth, and he redeems Ruth and Naomi. And obviously there's the love story there, and it's so important in Ruth. But even before Boaz knew that this love story was possible, he already was working to provide for Ruth and Naomi's needs. And he, you can see that he cared about them. Boaz gave us an example of how we are to treat widows, orphans, and strangers. Today in Ukraine... PHA is seeking to meet the needs of displaced Ukrainians in three ways. We're working to meet their physical needs, their spiritual needs, and their emotional needs. It all starts with the physical. Much like Boaz, who immediately saw to it that Ruth and Naomi were fed, we use our humanitarian aid kits to get people in through the door. Every week, Ukrainians in need come to our day centers, to the churches that we work, in, work with, and they meet our ministry partners in person. It's not a line where people are just handed food and sit on their way. They have an appointment. They can sit down. They can tell their story. They receive their food with a smile and a hug. And they know that someone actually cares about them. And it's through these personal meetings that we seek to meet their spiritual needs. Our partners and volunteers really care about them and they invite them to church. They give them biblical materials that are provided by EEM and we, we work with them very closely too. Uh, after one of these meetings, Oksana, the woman I told you about before, she had this to say. About one month after I met with PHA, I was on a bus feeling sick from yet another treatment. I started thinking about whether God exists. I silently prayed for a chance to complete my cancer treatment. Suddenly, my phone rang. It was Andre checking on me. Overwhelmed, I told him about my serious health condition, 
my father's need for chemotherapy and our final our financial struggles. Andre kindly invited me to meet him and he offered his help. In that moment, I felt my faith in God reaffirmed. I'm so grateful to Andre and his team in Zaporozhye because their support empowers me. When I'm with them, I feel like I belong and I have a purpose. It's surprising how these strangers have become like family to me. We come here with sadness, but we leave with joy. Your ministry's motto, being family, perfectly captures what you do. Nowadays, I eagerly look forward to Sunday church gathering. Being there with my fellow members, seeing familiar faces, and embracing them brings me immense joy. Despite my hearing impairment, I love to sing psalms with the congregation, worshiping the Lord together. Time flies during these meetings, and I can't wait for the next Sunday. Oksana received hope and healing, and all her problems didn't go away. But now she has the hope of God to help her get through these trying times. And she has community that can lift her up and help her when she needs it most. Now I want to share with you another story about someone else who received hope during trying times. In the summer of last year, in the city of Kramatorsk, there were attacks on the railway station. During that time, a family came to us from Kramatorsk. When I first met this family, they had one girl, a little girl. Her name is Nadia, and she recited the 91st Psalm for me. She said, do you want me to share? because I know this song. I said, go ahead. And she told me this song. It was wonderful to listen to the child. After that, her grandmother came up to me and said, do you know where she learned this song? I said, no, I don't know. Then she said, she learned this song in a bomb shelter. We were down there in the shelter for three or four days. And she was learning this song during all of that time. So then I asked her to tell it to me for a second time. And immediately, my heart ached a little. It was different this time. Because when you understand what happened, what this child went through, you can't just listen and not have it change you. Пожалуйста. 
I would say that we became very close with this family. Then, after staying with us for almost a week in Domek, they rented an apartment for themselves and lived in Kaminsky for two months. After that, they moved to Kiev, and now they already have a third child. They are a wonderful family. I pray for the Lord to protect them and to be with them. I met them again a month or two ago in Kiev. They said then, the love that you gave us cannot be forgotten. It remains in our hearts. I believe this is a great testimony of our work with people. The third part of our ministry is meeting emotional needs. You can see from that video the, the trauma that that little girl went through and that she's going to carry into the rest of her life. And you can imagine what it's like for all the other Ukrainians that have gone through something similar. So in war-torn Ukraine, the urgent need for trauma care is undeniable. And we understand the importance of addressing the emotional wounds that are caused by the war. And we are dedicated to providing crucial support. So we are grateful that last month we were able to launch what we're calling our Trauma Care Initiative. Uh, this begins with our Ukrainian ministry partners initiating these small group gatherings with the people that have come to us for aid. Uh, in all three cities, they will meet with these people, and these are just times to bring people together and to make connections. They'll have activities such as movie nights, uh, sports, and cookouts. And... They're a logical next step to move on from our aid distributions and build deeper relationships. These growing relationships are essential, and they're an excellent opportunity to introduce people to Christ. As relationships developed and potential participants are identified, we introduce local Ukrainian trauma counselors into the group setting, and then they have the option of meeting one-on-one. All of that is provided by PHA to the people of Ukraine, Ukraine at no cost. So I just want to end by thanking you for having me. Thank you for your prayers and for your support. Right now, PHA, we're constantly battling the lack of awareness of what's still going on in Ukraine. Even though it's not on the news, the war is continuing, and people simply aren't aware of the ongoing needs of the people there. Also, the war is becoming increasingly political. And I understand the complicatedness in that. But as PHA, we're not blindly sending funds into Ukraine. We're sending them directly to our longtime trusted ministry partners that we've worked with for almost 10 years. They work within a budget. Every month they submit to us receipts for their expenses. And the sad reality is that no matter what happens with our government, with Ukraine's government, or anyone else, we have a long line of hurting families standing in front of us in Ukraine. And they need our help. They need to know that Jesus Christ is their Savior. And there has never been a better time to be part of connecting these vulnerable Ukrainians to a Christian community that provides aid and hope. And finally, I want to encourage you 
that there's not just people in need of community in Ukraine. They're all around us, even here in early. You never know when you're going to meet someone that needs the hope that can only come from Christ. You know, I don't know that Boaz woke up that morning and he thought to himself, I'm going to share the love of God to someone who needs it today. But I do know that when he saw someone who was hurting, someone who was in need of community and hope, love and redemption, he didn't hesitate to share what God had given to him. And each and every one of us can look for opportunities to do the same thing. So if you need anything else, uh, you can come forward as we stand and we sing the invitation song.